Hello, friends. Welcome to the program. This is Dr. Jack. I wanted to let you know that I started this podcast because I believe that the rich knowledge base of psychology should be freely available to anyone, and, or at least anyone with a podcasting app, right, and internet. And my mission is to really offer you a peek into the field of psychology by any means necessary, really just limited by my imagination. So I will offer you or have offered you my class lectures. You can see that early on in the early episodes. I've been speaking with a diverse group of psychology students and professionals from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialty areas, including today's episode, as well as learning their individual origin stories in terms of how they got into the field. And I hope to bring on more professionals to talk and take a deeper dive into specific concepts and theories and research. Now, you may have noticed that this past week I updated the name of our podcast from Psychology Concepts Explained to Psych Explained. I figure when you search the word psych and then you add the word explained, you'll find me. So as long as you're subscribed and following, it shouldn't be a problem. And depending on your podcast app, you may see the new artwork as well and the new description of the podcast. So that's been refreshed. And I want to thank my daughter, Emma, who is very artistic and has a very good eye in assisting me with finding the right font and colors for the very simplified artwork design. I just wanted to make it very legible, and we did a good job with that. All right, let me give you some background about my guest in today's episode. And she is Professor Dr. Oyenike Balongun Mwangi. And I practice that a lot, so hopefully I came close to getting her name right. And um, there, we, we cover so much material in our discussion today, and I really enjoyed this conversation and got a chance to know her a little bit better. And we kind of joke about how during these get-to-know-you kinds of interviews, uh, these episodes, that a theme really does not present itself until later on in the episode. And, and I pretty much concluded that the theme for this episode is that she has really mastered the trifecta of a psychology uh, academic, which is the three roles of teaching, research, and being a clinician as well. So I really don't know how she fits that all in one week's worth of work, um, but she apparently is very passionate about each of those aspects. So let me give you a little bit of background. So Professor Oyenike is an assistant professor of psychology at Salve Regina University. Oh, I really hope I pronounced that right. I should have looked that up. And that's located in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, she is a licensed psychologist in the state of Massachusetts and earned her doctorate degree in counseling psych from Northeastern University. So her training and professional experiences are really quite wide and cover a wide range of settings including college counseling centers, community mental health settings, residential treatment programs, um, forensic inpatient sites, and hospital programs as well. So in addition to her private practice, which I think is quite amazing to be an academic and have her own private practice, she's a full-time assistant professor. So what that means at the university level is that she has an active research agenda. And we do talk a bit in this episode about her research interests, which I really find fascinating. I hope to bring her back just to focus on 
just her research projects that are ongoing. And maybe she can bring on a graduate student uh, that's working with her as well. I think that'd be very interesting. So uh, in terms of her research, she focuses on racial microaggressions, racial cultural disparities. We talk about that in this episode. And a lot about body image too. So the cultural component of body image, you know, in terms of based on where you are in the world, how does uh, our consumption of media affect our sense of self and uh, how, we, how we perceive our own body image. Okay. And she also does research about discrimination of racial minorities with serious mental illness, and, and the list goes on. Okay, So I really enjoyed her story, especially her story about uh, her family of origin, country of origin, and how she made her way to the U.S., um, what spurred her to go into the field of psychology, which is kind of interesting, interesting story as well. And anyway, I just want you to just dive into this episode and enjoy it. I'm not going to give out give too much away other than I really enjoyed exploring the trifecta of roles that Professor Oyeneke is able to hold down and actually do very well. So it was a privilege to get to know her. And again, I hope she'll be available to come back soon. Now, one last thing before we get started, I know there are tons and actually literally millions of podcasts out there, so I'm very humbled and appreciative that you decided to spend your time listening to mine. And so I hope you can uh, help support me by buying me coffee, by subscribing, following, doing all the usual stuff. And also, you know, please take some time to rate and review my podcast as well. Now, if you look in the description, we also have a, if you're really interested in psychology and want to be part of our community, there is a community in the Discord, okay, so you can join that, uh, and that's open to professionals as well as students, okay, so anyone who has any interest in psychology, you're really welcome to do that. Okay, that's pretty much it. Uh, again, thank you very much for joining the program, and let's go ahead and get started. All right, I'm very happy to have Professor Oyenike with me today, and I've been practicing that name. She gave me the thumbs up. Okay, okay <laughs> sign. Um, so welcome to the podcast. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for having me. Sure. I put out the word, uh, some of the previous episodes you've heard, I put out the word with the Asian American Psych Association. Uh, mm -hmm. So I decided that, well, what other organizations am I with? This, that worked out so well. So I'm a member of the Division Two for the American Psych Association, Society for the Teaching of Psychology. They call it STP. Mm -hmm. So there's a Facebook group. I just put out the word like, hey, I have a podcast. And I got approval first <laughs> from the admins. Can I do this? It's not self-promotion. I want to promote <laughs> other people. And uh, and Professor Oyanike was the first, one of the first to respond to me. So I'm, I'm so glad. And and as you know from some of these other podcasts, right, you've listened to a couple that uh, I really just want to get to know people. It's sort of like Conan O'Brien needs a friend kind of thing. You know, <laughs> have you ever heard of this podcast? That's what, that's what his podcast is called. And I'm kind of the same way, you know, it's a lonely existence to teach online, right? I'm not in a college campus physically. So this is my excuse to meet new people and make new friends in the field. All right, so what is your origin story? Um, how did you, uh, what inspired you to become, and your, your doctorate is in counseling psychology. Uh, just give us the, the lowdown of that, of your history. Of course. I love talking about my origin story. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, 
because it's one of serendipity actually hmm. um one assignment changed my trajectory really? um, so if you asked me in high school what i thought i was going to be um i would have said to you pharmacy hmm. um and I don't know that it was particularly a thoughtful response. It just sounded good when I said it. And in Nigeria, when I said it to people, they were satisfied. <laughs> so I kept saying it over and over again. And, um, you know, to sort of set the context, growing up in Nigeria I was sort of in a, a sort of an unusual educational experience where my parents moved me in sixth grade to an American missionary school mm. um, in central north central Nigeria, where I lived in a little quaint city called Jos. Um, so from sixth grade to 12th grade, I was in invariably kind of in an American system. Um, so my senior year, I took an elective psychology course and mm. the guidance counselor at my school taught the course and had us analyze characters in a very old movie, um, Ordinary People with a young oh, yeah, Timothy yeah. Hutton. Yes. Yeah. Um, and after an assignment was done, she called me into her office. I thought I was in trouble. Um, <laughs> and she basically said it was probably the most passionately written assignment she had ever wow. read from me and yeah. wondered, you know, if I would consider psychology as a career. And really, this was the first adult who ever said yeah. to me, I see something particularly intuitive about what you did. Right. Yeah, I think. Yeah. You know, I was a fairly well-rounded, strong student. I know I did well. Um, and my parents wanted us to do well, but never really pushed a particular agenda, which is kind of unusual for the Nigerian parent, right? It's a culture that's really focused on academic excellence and mm -hmm. pedigree. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, being Taiwanese-American, I know that a lot of Asian-Americans' parents, again, not to overgeneralize, but many yeah. also very education-focused and tend to yes. push their kids into certain professions and some are more strict than others you know like do this or i disown you or versus you know <laughs> well okay i don't understand that field but it's okay so what educate me about nigerian culture again we can't overgeneralize, but mm -hmm. based on what you know what kinds of careers do parents tend to sort of encourage their kids to go into yeah i mean i mean i i, I think you know, my sense is this will not come as a surprise to you, doctor, lawyer, mm -hmm. <laughs> engineer. Yeah. Uh, my dad was an engineer, one of those careers of pedigree. My mom yeah. was a nurse. Um, yeah. So certainly I had parents that were sort of living the kind of existence that was a thing of pride. Um, so certainly there was a very small cross-section of professions that were thought to be the ones that would, yeah. you know, stop traffic and people would look at you in yeah. awe. Um, and certainly the STEM careers. What do you think is the main motivator for those particular choices within the culture? Because I know in Asian American culture, in Asian culture in general, a lot of it is about status, right? It's about family pride, right? Yeah. Being able to brag about their kids that they're doing this, doing that. It's almost like a competitive thing in, in an unhealthy way <laughs> in some cases, right? Yeah. So do you think it's a little bit of that? Or is it just, I want my want my child to have a secure, financially secure life and those are the professions that provide it? I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both, both right? Yeah. I think there is status in there, but there's also financial security, right? Yeah. This idea that your child is going to be 
financially secure enough to take care of you in your old age, um, implicitly or explicitly. That's sort of the understanding that it's yeah. these sorts of professions secure a financial future for the family, right? Yeah. Um, so, but status is definitely in there, right? Um, and certainly when I said that, it was part of it was to be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to do something in STEM that has some status. And like I said, when I say that to people, they were satisfied. Nobody really questioned yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so to, to kind of pivot was mm -hmm. interesting. I wanted to say scary, but I think it was, I don't know that it was all scary. It definitely was interesting because I didn't necessarily have any sort of template for what it meant to embark on a career in psychology, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. have a lot of examples of psychologists in my sphere. There were definitely a ton of doctors and lawyers. Right. Um, so it's a, a fairly rare major for students, maybe a career field within Nigeria as well. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, there's certainly more of a footprint now, but certainly at the time that I was graduating, I, I certainly did not. Mm -hmm. no. Okay, so now continuing with your story, after yeah. that assignment, you were in, you're, you're, you got this great feedback from yeah. your instructor, guidance counselor. Yeah. So then what happened from, from that point? I started putting that as a, as a major. This was, mm -hmm. the, this was the fall of my senior year when I was applying to colleges. Um, and at that point, um, you know, there was this sense being from a really close-knit family that I didn't necessarily want to leave the continent per se. Um, like I said, I was in, an, you know, this American school with a lot of American missionary kids, a lot of kids of Nigerian and other diplomats from other nationalities. It was a really just really special, culturally diverse place, but everybody yeah. was headed out of Nigeria. Uh, I see, I see. Um, so I ended up deciding to go to undergrad in Nairobi in Kenya because I did want to kind of flutter my wings a little bit and had some support of my, from my family to do that. So my undergrad was in psychology um, in a, a college in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, oh, okay. So that's a, how did your family respond to that choice? Did they prefer to have you stay in the country or were they okay with you studying internationally? I mean, outside they, the country. They were, they were thrilled that I wasn't heading to the UK or the US. It was oh, really? six hours away by plane. It felt a little bit more accessible. Yeah. They, we actually had close family friends in Nairobi. So they, they felt like it was a soft place for their daughter to land. Um, so it was a really great, I think, middle path yeah. for me where I felt like, you know, I wasn't necessarily... And, you know, and I think if I did come, if I did decide or really push to leave, they would have supported that. They would have, but I felt that they, this was a really interim. And as the oldest daughter, I felt some responsibility to stay close and, mm. you know, and not to fly the coop in a way that was destabilizing for my family. I still have that sense of responsibility to yeah. them, uh, but it was a great. So digging into that a little bit, sorry. <laughs> so the sure. oldest child has a certain role, certain responsibility. And how many siblings do you have? I am the oldest. Of, so I have four younger siblings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so there was five of us in all. Yeah. Um, and certainly this is probably a responsibility that I have internalized that I don't think my parents necessarily feel or my siblings necessarily feel. But, you know, I, I as the oldest sibling, I still feel very much like a stabilizing force for my, right. by my siblings and for my family. And I think yeah. that um, I always want to be in orbit. Um, 
close. Yeah. Is everybody else back home or, or are there other family members or siblings also in the U.S. or outside of Nigeria? I would love if they were close. They have no interest in being outside of Nigeria. <laughs> so they have stayed and stayed and stayed. And at this point, I know I'm just going to be a transnational. Um, uh, so uh, they come as often as they can. And I yeah, go as yeah. often as I can. And I see yeah. them. I mean, COVID has really put a wrench in how often. Um, it's definitely stalled our annual visits. Um, yeah. But I hope that we pick up at the end of the year again. Yeah. So are you based in the U.S. permanently, so to speak? At this point, my roots are deep, my professional, my academic, my personal roots. Um, you know, I am a mother of a young eight year old now and he's growing up here, you know, yeah, so I think yeah. that there I do have deep roots over two decades here. And I and I think that at best, I think of myself as sort of a transcontinental yeah. being right. A little bit of my time is spent at home to the degree that I can. And yeah. my time is spent here. And I, and I think that I'm over time, I've gotten really I've found some peace in that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm at mm -hmm. home in both places, and I yeah. and I see that less as a fissure now, and more of a more of a gift. Yeah, yeah. So it's not so much a deficit, but but a strength, and and seeing the benefits of being in, in both sides. Now, the reason I asked that was because I know a lot. There's a pressure, I think, on um, outbound international students, especially not so much when they leave at a younger age, that kind of makes sense, right? You, you, you immigrate to another country, that's sort of where you set your new roots, but you left when you were a little bit older, right? Um, and so was there an expectation from family that this was gonna be temporary, you'll get an education in the US and then come back? And then slowly they had to start to accept that, oh, I don't think she's coming back. <laughs> yeah, my expectation was to get a graduate degree and go home. So mm -hmm. for me, I'm surprised that I'm here yeah. two decades on. Um, I think you know how you know training in psychology goes. I did the yeah. master's degree mm -hmm. and I did a little bit of work in the field and then was like, I want more. I want to sort of expand more. And then you go into doctoral training yeah. and that's a half a decade. Um, right. So, exactly. and the next thing you know, you're really embedded. So it was a surprise to me that one year became two and then three because of all the things that were flowering from this particular decision I made to pursue this career in this field. Um, so yes, we started out thinking it would be temporary and then yeah. I'd be back. Yeah. Um, so how was that application process being in Nigeria in the high school? And I, I'm assuming it was easier because of the school you were in, right? They had all these connections with the U.S. So yeah. was that a, a huge benefit in, in applying to, and how did you do your applications for for the, you know, in terms of your research and, and did you have, what were your preferences and places to go? And, and was that just scary to even <laughs> relocate <Ooh>. all that? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's really interesting. I think I say to people all the time that, you know, I was sort of, I would spend the day in Nigeria in the U.S. and then go home to Nigeria at night. That was really the degree um, of, of sort of the, the sort of that American system of education was very much part of my day as a high schooler in Nigeria. So we would take the SATs and mm. it was, and we would use these textbooks from this accredited group. I think it was like the Western States accreditation group or something. So books yeah. that probably would were in use in the Midwest at the time is my guess. Um, so I, I knew the language of applying to colleges. And in fact, the college that I applied to in Nairobi was called United States International University and mm. took SAT scores. And it was sort of a 
seamless transition. In fact, it would have been harder for me to pivot into a Nigerian university than it was for me to apply to American institutions. I would wow. have had to take a Nigerian it, it, you know, exam called the JAM or O-levels or A-levels according to the British system because Nigeria is, you know, is a, was colonized by the British. And so that system is very much a British curriculum. Um, so it was easier for me to actually apply to American colleges than it was for me if I desired to pivot to do that in the Nigerian system. So I felt some preparation and facility for doing that. It was fairly yeah, seamless. Yeah. So your undergrad degree was actually from Nairobi, right? Correct. Then, then you applied to graduate school, started grad school in the U.S. Correct. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. So where, where did you land when, when you, uh, for your, well, now was it a separate master's then doctorate programs did you do or were they, a, was it a combined program? I think it was separate, right? It was separate. So I went to Springfield College in Western Massachusetts mm. for a life, for a mental, for a clinical uh, mental health counseling um, master's degree, which was licensed eligible for Massachusetts um, and then worked in the Boston area, worked in a group home, um, was a director of admissions in a residential program for adolescent wow. girls. Um, and then, you know, did a lot of flitting about, including being an academic counselor for a while um, wow. at, a, at, a, at a higher ed institution uh, before deciding to, to um, apply to doctoral programs in counseling psychology. Um, so yes, there was that interim bit there where um, I had a master's degree and I was a master's level clinician really mm -hmm. exploring the field. Yeah. Um, and I thought that, you know, I, I do appreciate that I did that because by the time I did make the, the decision to sort of go full into doctoral study, I was pretty clear about what I liked about the field, where I was particularly strong, the yeah. populations that burned me out. So I went to doctoral study with some, you know, with some real information about the yeah. things that worked for me and didn't. And some, and some actual uh, work experience and life experience. I think that Correct. would help. And, yeah. You know, I think between every juncture, like back between bachelor's and going to master's or master's to doctorate, I think for every one of us, it's helpful to, to pause a little bit and really reflect on what our goals are because each step is a huge commitment. Yeah. And I've told my story many, many times that, that I felt like I jumped into each stage too quickly. I didn't have a chance to grow up first, think about, well, what, what is this going to lead to? You know, yeah. why am I going to this field? It was just sort of like, okay, I'm supposed to go to the next step, right? Yeah. And so you, you had a really clear vision at the time. What did you want out of a PhD that your master's did not satisfy you at the time? Yeah, this is like the magic question, question right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I think for me, it really was at that point, my desire to instruct, right? Mm. So, you know, there was a, you know, one of the things that I've discovered, and even more so after my doctoral degree, um, I think I, I had that sense coming in, but it's only been confirmed is that I wanted to be able to switch sets a little bit more, right? Um, I bore easy and I need to like really have different things that I'm doing connected to my, to the thing I love. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I do love the clinical work. I did not exclusively want to do that because I have a love for investigation and research and I have a love for teaching and uniquely we're in a field that allows you to use this sort of depth of knowledge and pivot in these ways. 
Um, so I want, and I say all the time when I talk to people that I love the trifecta I am yeah. offered, right? Which is that I teach and I have this interaction with students and I love that. In fact, that's probably the thing that feeds me the most. And then I have a chance to actually add to existing knowledge, especially as it relates to these disparities and what is focused on in our field, right? Is that yeah. there are all these marginalized groups that never really get a spotlight fully focused, right? Um, that maybe there's, you know, just sparse research in some areas that need further investigation and I can add to that. Yeah. Um, and then there's clinical practice, which I really do enjoy, but I'm a psychologist who I find burns out easy and it, mm. it, it, it needs to be a part of what I do. I love that, but it, it needs to be a certain percentage of what I do. Um, I can't burn at a hundred percent with clinical work. And I learned that doing full-time clinical work is yeah. that I really, yeah. I don't do my best work when I have a full week of clients. I do yeah. my best work when I can actually have eight to 10 that I spread out um, over the course of a week. I do my best clinical work that way. Yeah. What's a typical full-time when you were full-time, right? Um, not the ideal. There's always an ideal number of clients yeah. per week, but what number, number of sessions, you know, whatever number can you give me for, per week to give, give people an idea of what a full-time therapist load is like and what yeah. led to, you know, how it can lead to burnout? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, my best example of what I would say is sort of typical clinical work was in community mental health. I was in one of the largest ones in Boston during my um, internship year. Okay. Um, and, you know, this is a place of high need people who have severe chronic uh, mental health conditions um, and have a host of other problems that intersect with that, that make them really difficult, high need um, populations. And, you know, in my work in that area, in, in that particular setting, most clinicians were averaging about eight a day, right? Wow. So, uh, you know, four yes. in the course of a morning, yeah. a little bit of a break, four later in the day, and in there are clinical meetings, right? So these are full hard days, yeah. and a lot of push. And, you know, and the truth is in every field, there is variation, right? For me, by person number five, I was bleary eyed, but I yeah. did have colleagues who really just burned hot through the day and yeah. just sort of, you know, have a different set of just abilities and skills in that area and seem yeah. to feed off of it. So I think there was definitely individual variation there, but I would say, you know, you're averaging six to eight a day if you're sort of in community mental health doing this type oh, of work. That's amazing. And and typically underpaid and underappreciated, right? Working with Absolutely. a very challenging population that requires the help of medical doctors, a whole team, right? Social work and, and so forth, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I was thinking back to my internship year. That was the last year I did any kind of clinical work. And you know, people don't appreciate it. it's not just that one hour, you have to write, you have to prepare for that client or patient, yes. then you have to write case notes afterwards. Right? Yes. And then you have supervision, or peer supervision regarding each client to see how their progress is going, right, or possibly team uh, multidisciplinary meetings to discuss a patient. Yes. So I'm not sure how you can possibly fit that in with six to eight patients a day. There's no way you guys, are, you, you all were working an eight-hour workday. Work There's no way, right? Probably 10 to 12, you're working, possibly. You're, I mean, you are working long days. Um, yeah. You know, I, I had a supervisor who was 
who was just amazing at what she did and was always pushing for being very strategic about your time, including making sure your your case notes were done in the clinical hour. I was horrible at that, right? So I would see people end to end and then have a bucket of notes to do. And she's like, no, 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 no. You meet people for 50 minutes and then you do 10 minutes of notes. And she was really good at it. Till this day, I don't have that down. Um, But yes, it is is remarkably challenging. Yeah, because you would forget by the end of the day what happens with client number one, really, yes. you know, in, yes. in the moment you feel like, oh, you know, I get it. I, I sort of, but by then it's like, your mind is sort of blank. What did we talk about for 15 What did we talk about? <laughs> you know, in committing mental health, those notes are really important, right? Yeah. If clients are really high risk, the last note is really the jump off point if they end up inpatient or something happens, if right. there's risk. So keeping those notes are a really important part of really keeping clients safe. So there's no opting out of those things. Right, right. Yeah, and there's an art to that, right? There's an art and a science to yes. writing case notes. And, yes. uh, yeah, I, I remember that, that is training. its own show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll bring you yeah. back just to talk about that. How to write good case <laughs> clinical case notes. Um, you know, my my show is just evolving, right? So it's like, whenever I talk to a guest and they have particular specialization or expertise or passions, I'm thinking, wow, we can just talk about that for a whole hour. Yeah. So I yeah. plan to bring a lot of people back. Uh, I've, I've spoken to several grad students and an undergrad, and I thought hey, it'd be kind of cool to follow up with them, mm-hmm. you know, in a couple of years, see where they are. And they felt like, right. oh, that's that's pressure. <laughs> I, gotta, <laughs> I better do well if you can have me back on the podcast. I'm saying, good, maybe that's a little positive yes, pressure. accountability for you. Yeah, accountability, you know? right, right. Okay, uh, when you mentioned the word trifecta, that was the, the, the word I thought of actually as well. Ten seconds before you said it, I thought that was kind of funny because... <laughs> You're doing that, the, the triple role that I think um, a lot of people aren't able to do, um, the teaching, the academic teaching, the academic research, and your clinical work, right? And I think a lot of people are great researchers, but if they're an academic, they're probably not very good in the classroom. Um, I've had that experience with some mm-hmm. professors, like, well, they're so well-known, famous for their research, but gosh, they can't talk worth anything in the classroom yeah. uh, or they're a famous clinician very good clinician but they're they're even though they're an academic they're very weak at research so it sounds like you really have a passion for all three so we've talked a little bit about your clinical side and we can dive into that more too but and but i was looking over your research interests and they're so interesting so talk about what your passion projects are in your research stuff you've done want to do that kind of thing Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and to your question about a trifecta, you know, I think this is one of the things that's affirming about landing in a space. And I don't know if this is your experience too, Jack, but I think landing in a space that, you know, you know, every possible strength that you've been gifted with really comes to bear. Right. There are lots of things that I would like to be good at, (laughs) not good at, but I I definitely feel when I'm in the front of the class or when I'm thinking about a research project that every skill that I do well, right, gets to really manifest in this particular role in a way that just fits for me. And I'm so thankful for that guidance counselor, Miss Woods, for seeing that in me, you know, as an 18-year-old high schooler, right, because I didn't know that. Um, So yes, in terms of research right now, I have a couple buckets. I think broadly Mm -hmm. defined, I like to look at or explore examine racial disparities in mental health, right? Like to look at the ways in which, you know, race and ethnicity tends to really impact 
what it is that people are living with, right? How it defines their context, how it might make problems they're facing worse, right? How it might make treatment outcomes, right? Change. Yeah. Um, those types of questions are really interesting to me. I've also spent some time really exploring, and this was the topic of my dissertation, body image among Black African women. So African mm. women living in Africa. Um, and again, it's I feel that that's disparities research because when I was looking at the literature on body image, um, kind of a cursory look, I didn't necessarily feel that what was in the literature really explained my experience growing up um, in Nigeria. Yeah. Um, in the literature, there's all this, you know, a lot of, and I, and I think it's fairly accurate. So in comparisons of, you know, uh, black women um, and compared to other racial groups, it will say that black women really have high levels of body dissatisfaction, of high levels of body satisfaction, right? Mm. Um, and in that context, it looks like, well, you know, black women are fine. They love their yeah. bodies, you know, and, you know, this is really the space, at least a clinical space for young white women. Um, and I knew growing up in Nigeria that that really was not my experience, that they were I, I heard almost daily explicit comments about my body size mm. that were really quite painful to me. And I know that was the experience of my contemporaries as well. And I wondered, you know, why that was missing from the literature yeah. um, that really when you're thinking about a monolithic continent and Africa tends to be viewed in that way, right. um, you often what you see missed is that there's been rampant globalization. Mm. And certainly as I was growing up in the, you know, my my tweens and teens in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the images and shows that I were exposed to were not Nigerian shows. You know, right, it was right. it was really shows that were that were American shows. And those images of beauty ideals were the beauty ideals I was aspiring to. And those were caustic to me. And I felt that there was something missing in the literature there. So mm -hmm. I spent some time really looking at that. And I'm glad I did because they're you know, I think a lot of my my thinking and hypotheses on this are, are are quite accurate, right? That there's really corners of how we have to think about body image among African women and, and certainly other, um, and I'm seeing that emerging even in studies of Black women in the U.S., which is that really non-weight related aspects of body, um, of, of appearance tend to impact Black women more than body size. So hair texture, um, skin color, darkness, um, nose and lip size, you know, those aspects of appearance that are often excluded in the literature when there's really a focus more on the thin ideal. Um, so those really excite me. Uh, I've been working with a group of students on a content analysis of magazine covers. So the largest circulating magazine in Nigeria right now is called Genevieve. Mm -hmm. And we've been looking at the cover models on these uh, magazines and really trying to content analyze who ends up on a cover. What's their body size? What's their skin tone? What do they have as a hairstyle? Who are they pictured with? You know, and we have been content analyzing on several metrics. Um, we've done about 64 issues right now. So wow. it's been a really fun project and so exciting to do. I think the findings are really important. Um, so yeah, that's where I play yeah, <laughs> most yeah. of the time. And I think uh, research is underappreciated to this extent that I think when people think about, or even students who want to pursue psychology, well, how do I make an impact? I want to help people. The first thought might be counseling, therapy, right? Uh, possibly teaching. You know, I can I can spread the word through teaching my students. But uh, I think that the research aspect of it, I'm guessing, 
is a little underrepresented within the field. And then now you're exploring an area which could have great influence, right? Because of your, your, you being represented in that position, now you can pursue projects that would not have been pursued before. Yeah. So talking about that particular research topic that you just mentioned about body image, um, one of the earliest exposures I had was watching those Gene Kilborn videos about marketing and advertising. And I don't know if you've come across it, but they're, no, they're quite not. old. I think it was some of the earliest stuff, like maybe from the late seventies, early eighties. And I used to show that video in class um, back in the day when I was in the classroom. <laughs> and basically she did the same thing. She did slideshow after slideshow of different types of advertising over time and how, how that possibly can affect one's sense of self and body image and the messages that were communicated mm. within these ads, not just the image of what a person's body looked like, but the message about women's roles and gender roles, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, now a cultural question, and so this is all about my curiosity and, and for not knowing much about uh, African culture, the con and I know a lot of people assume Africa is a country, but you know, the continent of Africa. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, before all this Western media, what were the traditional uh, ideals of feminine beauty for women in terms of body size and that kind of thing? Because I recall from learning about like Pacific Islander culture, it's usually about being round and full figured until yeah. Western media took place and then people became, you know, uh, had a very negative body image and wanted to be thin. So what, 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 tell me a little bit more about that from the Nigerian or African perspective. Yeah, I mean, we've been thinking about that a lot because we've been currently writing up a study from the data of my dissertation comparing across regions. So we're looking at Kenyan women as a sample and comparing sort of the body image metrics with Nigerian women. And one of the things that did show up was that among this group of women, you know, we had them talk about their current body sizes sort of picked from a figure rating scale, right? Which is really a, nine pictures of women mm. of varying sizes. And we asked them pick the picture that looks like you now and then pick the picture that you aspire to, oh, right? And in both those groups, uh, both Kenyan and Nigerian women actually selected relatively smaller body sizes as their ideal, right? Mm. How do we understand that? Well, if you look at the sort of the anthropological literature, it will say to you, well, you know, there are certain groups and that's true in Eastern Nigeria, that would actually send brides to fattening houses, right? Oh, because, interesting, yeah. you know, the, you know, the larger she was on her wedding day, the, it was a signifier that she was well taken care of. And it's a message to her in-laws and to her prospective partner um, that this is really the way in which we want you to care for her. She should want for nothing, right? Um, and that yeah. was considered beautiful. So, you know, and certainly you will see that. However, you know, the group of women that we were looking at were very highly educated women. So in fact, our entire Nigerian sample all had at least a bachelor's degree. Mm. And that's 109 women that we interviewed. So we had to look at the impact of socioeconomic status, right? And education. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that we, we found was that when you look globally, right? When countries start to move up the income ladder, right? Often bodies get larger because what happens, right? McDonald's sprout up, yeah, there's yeah. more access to 
sort of more luxury foods, people have more income to spend on what they eat. And so body sizes get larger. And then what gets idealized is the flip of that. So Mm. as bodies get larger, actually, and countries that now are going up the income lag, start to idealize smaller body sizes. And it's, it's flipped when countries are lower on the income scale, right? So when countries are you know, if we're thinking about the World Bank categorized as low income, often pockets are, you know, pockets are empty and food mm. is idealized and larger body sizes really indicate that you're comfortable. Yeah. So, and you can see then, you know, that it's pretty intuitive that way. So we think that how to think about maybe, and again, studies, we need more in this area. Yeah. What might be happening on the African continent is that really, as there has been more um, globalization, more images, and sort of widespread imagery from all over the world that may be introducing new beauty ideals, but also that many countries in Africa really have, that there's a sociodynamic diversity that, when we're talking, not sociodynamic, I'm talking about socioeconomic diversity that often is kind of in many ways, just not visible often. When you think right. about African countries, you think everybody is poor and they're living right. under $2 a day. Yeah. That's not true, right? Well, it, like, it's always those infomercials. It's always those infomercials. For, for the charities with the poor kids with their bones yes. showing with flies yes. on their face. Yes. And I think for most Americans, that's literally the only images they that's see the only image. coming from Africa. Yes, and there's truth to that image, right? There's tr- of course, there's a grain there's of truth, truth to, to it, just, just like there's poverty everywhere, right? Yes. But then they don't see the rich Nigerians, the high-tech cities and yes. startups, you know, fashion. And I think it was CNN International, one of those cable programs actually did have like African-centric business type shows yeah. that highlighted, you know, young African entrepreneurs. And, yes. and I think, well, why don't we have more programs like that that Correct. give a more diverse Yes. complete view. So the right. problem is this, you know, my favorite author, Chimamanda Adichie, uh, speaks about this. He says the problem is just the single story of a people that's sort of exported in this way, right? It's right. it's not that there isn't truth that story, it's that it's incomplete. You right. know, like I grew up solidly middle class and I think my family still is, right? But that's not the story of Nigeria that most people see is that there's, you know, really some socioeconomic diversity. And then there are women in those tiers having completely different experiences of their bodies based on that information. So that's sort of the type of research nuance that I hope to contribute, right? And to, and in many ways to, to, to work with my students to see, right? To use all these ways of asking questions that allow them, right, to be themselves in research. You know, like I I think of myself as a mixed methods researcher and I do a lot of qualitative research and I love qualitative research because there's this, first of all, I fight with this idea of objectivity all the time because (laughs) I think that there's inherent bias and we have to get really comfortable with Mm -hmm. naming the biases that we have and the lens through which we write things and think through problems, right? And that's the case in our psychology books. Like the first thing I tell them is, This psychology book was written by two white men who have a lens, but you're not going to see them name that lens anywhere in this book. But we're going to think about what that lens is, why what they selected is in here, 
And just because there's no psychology of Nigeria where I come from doesn't mean <laughs> that people don't have thoughts about emotions and behaviors in those right. parts of the world. It's just not packaged in your book, mm -hmm. you know. So qualitative research allows for positionality for us to say, look, we're embodied women. And so we're studying other women and we have feelings about that and that's okay. And we have a lens about that and we care about that. And that's allowed in this research. Yeah. So I want you to put your teaching cap on because yes. I know a lot of my audience may not understand the difference between qualitative and quantitative research. Oh, yes. So how about just a real quick basic lesson to help them <laughs> understand the difference between the two. And it has to do with what you said about objectivity. So yeah. uh, what, what's the best way for you to explain it to like a relative lay person or, or a young psychology student who's just learning about research? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm, you know, if we're thinking about how we think about the experimental, you know, the scientific method that you might learn in intro psych, right, which mm -hmm. is the idea of having, you know, um, you know, reducing bias by basically controlling for factors. So you have an independent variable and a dependent variable and you control for those variables so that when you're comparing groups, you can be pretty sure, right? That they're, that you're minimizing noise, right? So mm -hmm. impact. And it's, you think about, you know, I think about quantitative research as sort of numeric, right? You yeah. want averages, you want standard deviations, you know, those you know, those things that we teach in psychology around understanding populations, right? So in that, you know, ep, you know, all these things that I'm throwing out should be familiar to intro students around the bell curve, like who falls mm -hmm. under an average, who the outliers are, you know, that those types of numbers we use in psychology to really understand populations in numeric descriptive fashion, right? Yeah. And that's certainly true of qualitative research, the way I think about qualitative research is that we focus on narratives and words, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, you know, there, there is a history of qualitative research being at war with quantitative research, because, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, quantitative research, especially when we think about how we think about, you know, peer reviewed research is sort of thought of as gold standard and qualitative is sort of like, well, it's the other people, right? Um, and, and I'm beginning to feel that that's not necessarily the case. I think qualitative research is hard research. It's rigorous research, yeah. but I, I think of it as focused on story, really centering right. people's voices, not necessarily like if you think about quantitative research, um, and I'm thinking about basic, um, basic, um, statistics here, you need power. You need a lot of people mm -hmm. answering the same question to have confidence in what they say. And in qualitative research, a story from one person is thought to hold power, right? Um, and that story and that narrative about their lived experience, right, can be written up and shared as a way of, of deeply understanding a phenomenon, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I hope I'm doing a good job of, of sort yes, of creating professor. that distinction. <laughs> yeah. And I think of quantitative research, like you said, in terms of numbers would be an example, like giving someone a multiple choice survey. But then the problem is, right, is because those questions come from the researcher. Right? They may be missing out on a lot of nuance and detail or yeah. just important things, right? Yeah. Uh, information. So with a qualitative interview, you capture all that that's missing from those gaps of a multiple choice question. Yeah. Right. Yes. And then a qualitative study might lead to a quantitative study later. 
right? Yes. Possibly. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. So I think about them as compliments, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that they tell a story. I use both those methodologies, you know, together, separately. You know what I mean? Because I think that they give us, I mean, we are, in, in psychology, we are really concerned with describing what people are experiencing as best we can, right? And sometimes numerically is a quick grab at what is happening. Right, and right. qualitatively, it is story and narrative, which we're concerned with too. And whatever tools we have in psychology, at least it's my view, that we use those to really inform people about how people are experiencing their lives, their bodies, their worlds. Yeah, yeah. And speaking back to the trifecta, mm -hmm. you know, and you're speaking so passionately about research and, and your eyes light up, uh, that for me, I, um, I feel like I'm more passionate about two parts of the trifecta the teaching part of it mm. right and also the clinical part even though i'm not a clinician just talking about the clinical part of it yeah but i had a question um that i'm holding in, in my mind while you were speaking that when you're talking about the globalization and the mass media effects and all that i wonder though because uh, with the proliferation of these streaming services and the content in those streaming services are, are becoming much more diverse and representative, you know, yeah. K-drama is becoming very popular. Uh, we're seeing a lot of foreign, from the American perspective, foreign language programming floating to the top of, let's say, the Netflix, yes. you know, that kind of thing. And people are watching Squid Games, you know, you know, yes. no one's ever watched Korean shows before. It's like, and you know, I've heard actually some, from my daughter that she observed on social media with Squid Game, and I don't know if you saw the the show, but I definitely uh, heard it when it was going around. Yeah, it's the, Korean, yeah. right? It's in Korean language, and you watch it with subtitles, but you can also watch it dubbed. So apparently, a lot of people saw it, the dubbed version in English and thought it was an an American produced program. They didn't really? realize it was a Korean language show that actually is in, you know, produced in Korea and and. The actors are well-known Korean actors and that kind wow. of thing. Yeah, it just blows my mind. Anyway, mm -hmm. so back to my point. <laughs> With the globalization, do you think that could almost be a good thing because of the representation aspect of it, that it start, starts to level out that playing field that maybe will have a different effect on you know body image, maybe? Yeah, I think that there definitely is a flattening, right? Because I think that right now our society is having a completely different experience with information than has ever been the case, right? This access to really mainstream content in other cultures at our fingertips. I don't, you know, I don't know what will come from it. I think I'm really excited to see it. Yeah. I don't know what the implications are for body image. Um, I know that certainly already there's research on kind of what's happening with social media, especially with young girls. And, uh, oh, and I yeah. think the consensus right now is that it's damaging. Yeah, it's yeah. not good, um, you know, but I, you know, I don't know, right? I, you know, I think a lot of how we consume content is generational, right? Um, and I, you know, I think that there's a lot to be seen about how these digital natives, these young members of our community who have always consumed technology are consumed, like how they are interpreting it. I think that we make these assumptions. I don't think of myself as a digital native. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, there was one phone in my home growing up and <laughs> yeah, yeah, had same. a wire connected <laughs> to a wall. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to make assumptions about right. what the impact might be generationally, but I think that there is impact that yeah. is to be seen. And I think we're already beginning to see 
spaces of how this access um, might flatten the world for good, but also may flatten not for good. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the first things that I actually have my, my students read in my abnormal psychology class, the class that is soon to be renamed. Yes, I want um, to talk about that too. <laughs> is, um, is a book by uh, Ethan Waters called mm -hmm. Crazy Like Us. And he makes the argument that a lot of uh, the classifications of what constitute a mental health condition is really born in a part of the world the West, right? Mm -hmm. And right now we are in many ways exporting understandings of what problems of living are from a Western box that other people are consuming, even though it has not been part of their cultural idioms of distress, the way in which they think about their problems, right? And he has these vivid examples and I have students, the first assignment they do is they read excerpts from that book and reflect on it because I want them to really understand what we're talking about is really culturally informed and that abnormality is really, at least our understanding of abnormally, abnormality, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see yeah, me, yeah. abnormality is really a social norm that sits beneath people and tells them what is, what is, what is um, wellness and what mm -hmm. is not wellness, and that exists in every culture. But right now we have this power that is a particular culture exporting that all over the world, and right now it is on fingertips what it means to have bipolar disorder fingertips right. what it means to have anorexia but is it really what it means for someone in Fiji or for mm -hmm. someone in South Africa right it's hard right. to know mm -hmm. right and it's hard to know and it's hard to undo it once people have absorbed this as their way of understanding a particular experience that they're having it's a really interesting book I highly recommend it yeah I think um, a lot of students who start to study psychology fail to recognize and I try to bring it up frequently is that they're studying Western psychology, right? So it, yeah. it affects, um, you know, these personality theories. It affects, like you're saying, how we define disorders, the diagnostic and statistical manual and all that, yeah. right? Um, and how we categorize disorder or even just a label. So with the course called Abnormal Psych, and I'm, I know those were the names of textbooks and courses traditionally, yeah. but there's a movement to change that. So what's your take on that? What, what were you about to say in terms of renaming that kind of you know course and field yeah i mean i felt really strongly about and very uncomfortable about teaching a course called abnormal <laughs> psychology and i made that clear from the beginning and it's in the um, course catalog right it's not it's as if you can the, you can't rename it just like like that right it has i to go cannot <laughs> <laughs> i cannot at least not without a, a a pretty formal process um which is you know, the wheels are turning right now in my particular institution. Um, but yeah, my problem with the name of the course is this idea that in the name of a course is this idea that abnormality exists, right? That, and, and I'm, you know, and I, and I, not only that it exists, but that it's a dichotomous thing, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's abnormality, it's like a, you turn off a switch and there is normality, right? right? right. And I think that already that sends a message to my students that I don't want, which is that there is this on-off switch for what abnormality and normality is, instead of that we are all on this spectrum and we have varying amounts of certain problematic areas that really um, register in temperature. And we are concerned with it as psychologists when it becomes a problem in living, which means it's impacting your functioning. It's making you unhappy or someone else unhappy, right? But we can 
and have all these problems registering at every point in our lives, hot or cold, right? Um, and more of a spectrum, more of a dimensional way of thinking about things, that's one. But I also think that this idea of how we label a class like that is stigmatizing, right? Yeah. Um, that it, it, it does make people feel like they are less than um, yeah. to be categorized as abnormal and to have a book full of <laughs> these things that say you are other. Um, and the truth is, you know, it's really important um, for me to teach that class, not like I'm teaching a group of students to diagnose some other person, but right. that there are many of them in the room who maybe are struggling with particular aspects of what we're going to talk about or love someone who is, that we're really talking about us. Um, so this idea of objectivity where we sort of remove any care or interest in the subject and start to point at who we're diagnosing is really not a goal I have for that class. So my, my, my proposal is to change the class to psychological diagnoses and sociocultural contexts. Um, I don't know how far it's gonna go, but I think that that, you know, yeah. it, it, you can pick it out of a lineup as, as focused on the content of the class, but really not one that is not necessarily, um, I think having all the problems that we've just talked about. Yeah, I agree. I mean, our suffering is so fluid, and it depends on context, it depends on yes. your cultural background, you know, whether you're more individualistic or more collectivistic or yes. socioeconomic background, you know, so much involved, yes. that it almost sounds like when you look at the DSM, this book that these disorders happen in a vacuum, you know, you yes. just look at a person sitting in, in your office, and you just check things off on the list, okay, you have this symptom, that symptom. And that might work for things like influenza and, a, and an ear infection, right? But that yeah. medical model really kind of has uh, that kind of hindrance uh, when it comes to psychology, right? Yeah. When it comes to trying to help people. Yeah. And I think it's important for our students to understand that we're talking about a way of understanding that it itself has gone through shifts, right? So we talk about the history of the DSM itself, that, for example, homosexuality was listed in the first edition as a as a diagnosable clinical mental health condition. Yeah, we can sure. talk about hysteria in the Victorian era and how that was a medical condition that was diagnosed of women who really were engaging in anything that made people uncomfortable was not socially acceptable, right? Yeah. Um, so it, that really in there is about who gets to decide what is diagnosable and what is not. And we've seen that the DSM itself has made these shifts because there have been these social cultural shifts over time. Um, so yes, you're right. I think with the medical model, it's been difficult because it's not the flu, right? Yeah. We're talking about understandings and shifts based on you know, cultural changes, what we know and accept and, and open ourselves to change over time. And that's happening around the world. So it's a really shift. It's like working with something that's shifting sands and you really have to focus on what's underneath less about these classifications, I feel. You know, I think the DSM is sort of like a necessary evil because as a clinician, mm -hmm. you know, if you take insurance, yes, right, you have to report a diagnosis, right? It's again, following the medical model, right? Just yeah. like there's a code for the flu, there's probably a code for bipolar disorder and the depression, anxiety, right? Yeah. And, and when you're forced to sort of, even if you take the model you're talking about, and that's how you view your client and set all these rich contexts. At the end of the day, you still have to pick a number, don't you? It uh, <laughs> on paper, right? Yes. And that's kind of the unfortunate part, you know. 
um, that we have to re- sort of reduce a person's uh, suffering or existence to this number. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In order, I to do get think com- that there there are ways to 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 do it um, with empathy, right, and with yeah. openness and with understanding of context, right. So you know. Yes, it is a necessary evil. Yes, it does organize us around how to help and certainly gives us a means to be within a structure. And I think our students have to sort of understand that there's a pragmatic, um, there's a pragmatic um, outcome that comes from really being, having some facility with the DSM that will help their work, but they have to understand that they have tremendous responsibility um, right, that this cannot be about ego. Yes, I have some things to take off here. Um, and for that reason, I actually have them use case methodology. So de-identified cases that they diagnosed and write up. Um, and, you know, we think about the language, we think about where we land, we think about what kinds of things are happening with this person that help us normalize what is happening with them, how we can write it so that when whoever is reading it is reading it understands you know, I cannot make this particular diagnosis about this person. I really have to see them as a full human being, yeah. right? With their religion, with their gender, with where they live, with what they earn. Like all of this plays into the into what you think about when you're coming up with a diagnosis. So I think that there is a way to really train clinicians to be culturally responsive as they use the DSM. Um, I know the DS, you know, the 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 review process itself has really focused on these particular issues is how to think about, um, you know, the whole person and thinking about diagnoses. Yeah, and that brings us back to the importance of research, right? Because mm-hmm. the updates on the DSM is based on empirical research, yeah. right? In terms of yeah. our understanding of certain issues and problems and, and diagnoses or, or new ones get discovered and labeled, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I hope that some listeners who want to pursue psychology really think about, you know, if you're curious and have a lot of questions to think about whether or not uh, research can be part of that career, you know, part of that trifecta. Now we, we dove into a little bit of two parts of trifecta and and I think we should finish our conversation with a little bit about teaching, which is actually the, the, the primary (laughs) reason that, you know, you responded to my, it was, it was in the context of teaching. So let me just ask you this. What, uh, what are your favorite subjects to cover in class that your students really like lighten up? And then secondly, what do you find most challenging to teach where it just sort of like frustrating that just as students have a hard time dealing with or, or understanding, putting you on the spot? Oh, I mean, what I love to teach, and this goes across all my classes, not particularly content, because um, I think about myself as a cross-cultural counseling psychologist, is really to think about how to make teaching practical to my students, right? And to embed it in the kind of concerns that we have. I'm right now in a, you know, at Salve Regina, which has a very strong mercy mission with critical concerns around immigration and women and anti-racism, right? And all of those are really important for me to point out when we're talking about something that feels to students almost unrelated, Mm. right? And I think, you know, our institution really self-selects for for students who care about the world. Um, And I, you know, and I enjoy teaching that and I enjoy seeing them make the personal connections, especially when I have them do these writing reflections. I get really excited to see students making connections to their actual lives, the things that they're doing. 
it is frustrating to me though when I you know and 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 you know and, and I don't always feel that this is on my students I think I I definitely have to figure out a way to have students be really confident in pushing back on on the the, the stuff that they see me present to them in the textbooks or in or in peer-reviewed articles, in the movies I have them watch. I want them to feel confident to say, look, there's something about this that I really did not enjoy and this is why. Um, you know, I, 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 I really bulk at being the kind of professor who stands in front of a class and just pours into them and get nothing back. Like I mm -hmm. want that sort of dynamism. And I see that really happen. I think it's probably developmental. My seniors get to the point where they are, you know, they're, yeah. they get really excited and they have things to say. Um, and, I, and I know my, that when we're talking about our first years and our second years, that they, they do too. It's just really about feeling like they have the confidence to get the voice. And I'm trying to think about ways to make that happen faster, right? Yeah, because I yeah. want them to connect to that voice really early. So I try and think about ways I can sort of nurture that voice really early because I found mine pretty late. But when I found it, you know, you know, I, I, I got really excited about the kinds of places that my mind would go once I had permission to really push back on things or to really deep, dig deeply into things that were resonating. I can really relate to that because, uh, you know, I have a 19 year old daughter and, mm. and you probably know this developmentally that as a, you know, preteen, so to see, sort of speak at that age, her personality was just everywhere out there. Yeah. No fear. Right. Yes. Yes. And then puberty hits, you know, those teen years, late teen years, suddenly, oh, you know, self-consciousness, right? A lot, a lot of these sort of internalized, you know, inadequacies yes. and the confidence level, that exuberance just is just gone, right? It's almost like surviving the teenage years and afterwards is about reclaiming what we had during those childhood years. Yes, yes. And, and like you said about being confident in your voice. So, I'm, so I, I know that, you know, at some point, maybe in a classroom or, or life experience, she's gonna click, something's gonna click. And it's gonna go, Oh, what I said actually wasn't stupid. It was actually valuable. People are nodding their heads, I got good feedback from someone. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm gonna be encouraged to speak out more. And that's exactly what happened to me also late it was in grad school, before yeah. I felt like Oh, I can just say what's on my mind yeah. without hesitation, right? And and like you said, you know, I think you do see that. And and I think as instructors, as professors, we have to work on creating that safe environment to encourage yes. them and, and to speak. So I think it's a combination of both in terms of their development and timing to to find their voice and their confidence, but also they have to have the right context. If you have a, a instructor doesn't care, whatever, or, or has is yes. top teaching top down. And my, my daughter gave me an example of that last quarter as uh, we're, my wife and I were so mad. It's like, Oh, we got to take her out. You know, <laughs> you know no, okay. Not, not violently, but you know, <laughs> just, just we're, we're frustrated. How can someone be teaching at the college community college level and have that kind of attitude and talk down yeah. to students and all that? It's like, you know, students will not blossom no, under that. Won't. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, so yeah, I can relate to a lot of, of what you were saying there. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I'm glad I had a chance to speak to you. Thank you for your time. And I'm, I'm so happy to speak to you in terms of your trifecta experience. 
I Thank think that's going to be that's, that, that word's going to be my subtitle for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I always figured out at the end of a conversation, like, okay, well, what topics were were because I don't have you know, like like I said to you earlier, I don't set an agenda going yeah. in, unless someone has like written a book or they're completely a specialist, they're super well known for this, but usually have people on who have multiple passionate areas to work yeah. on, right? And yeah. so I, th I think the fact that you work so well in those three areas is really amazing. Thank you so much. It was really nice to organically do this with you and for a title to emerge. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now that I know you a little bit better and in terms of your, not just your your personality and 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 also your specialization areas, we, I feel like I can bring you back if you want to, to talk in a deep dive into maybe one of your research projects or talk about a clinical area. Uh, we didn't really get into a lot of that because you have a whole list of women's mental health issues that you work on yeah. that uh, if, you, if you want, feel free to come back. I we'll want. Have... Please yeah. invite me back. <laughs> yeah, we'll have more conversations about that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay,